Today, I'm joined by Deborah Tanping. Deborah is a Senior Communications Manager at Revolut. In this episode, Deborah shares how a chance meeting with a patient financial advisor changed her perspective of money through budgeting and investing with a plan to achieve an early retirement. She also shares how she created a side hustle from a love of baking. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, be sure to subscribe and consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your friends. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. I'm your host, Philip Müller, and today we will be talking with Deborah Tan Pink on what it takes to learn more about financial literacy, talk about, you know, when she started to be interested in financial literacy and so on. Um, but before we get there, I want to give you a little quick background of uh, who Deborah actually is. Uh, Deborah leads the communications and PR efforts for UK fintech Revolut here in Singapore. And prior to joining Revolut, she was a CEO at an ad tech startup where she led the then two-year-old company to record to record an ARR of 1.5 million Sing dollars with marquee customers such as the Institute of Banking and Finance, the Singapore College of Insurance, and the Thai Banking Academy. Deborah made her foray into tech after spending 15 years in lifestyle publishing, during which she served as the editor of Clio and launched Cosmopolitan in Singapore after it was banned for 22 years. When work isn't keeping her busy, she runs a home bakery business and co-hosts the podcast called Good Girls Talk About Money. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really, really exciting. I think there's a, just in your bio alone, there's a, a really a few... Uh, super interesting topics I want to get to. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of, of of passive income, so I can see already a few things that are happening there. So I want to get to those uh, for sure later on in the podcast. But um, as we always do with all of our uh, guests, we like to dig a little bit deeper into that background and kind of like you know what you know where, where does your affinity to money come from, or was there even an affinity with money early on? Right, um, growing up in Singapore. Um, going to school, you know, going into adulthood and starting your first salary. What was your first experience like uh, with money? Did did your parents give you an allowance or uh, did you have a job growing up where you were like earning some money? What was that like? And yeah, what was the first kind of lessons you were taught? Well, I must say growing up, I, I was rather fortunate. Um, my parents gave me pocket money every every week and left me to spend it, you know, as how I like, you know, and there was very little um, nagging, so to say, um, to sort of take care of my money. Um, you know, my parents didn't go, you know, Debs, you've got to save your money. And every year during Chinese New Year, when we collect the Ang Pao's, um, unlike other parents who would take the Ang Pao money and sort of stash it in a bank account um, on our behalf, they just left it to, to us to manage that Ang Pao money. And, you know, I think this is where a a difference in our attitudes towards money actually um, started to show between my sister and myself. My sister, she she saved up those money. She really, really had a good savings account, you know, going on there. And in our teenage years, she was the one with like, you know, a fat bank account. Whereas for me, I'm the kind who like, you give me money, I'll spend it. You give me money, yeah. I'll spend it. You know, and when I need more money, I'll ask for it. And sometimes maybe I'll get scolding I'll get nagging from my mom saying that I spent too much money. So, you know, I think 
somewhere along the line when we were in university, I got into a bit of a trouble with my handphone bills and also with my handphones. I kept losing them for some reason, but I would never dare to tell my mom about it because, you know, um, it was they were expensive stuff back in those days, right? And it was my younger sister who always bailed me out. She would spend her own, she would dig into her own savings, that's how much money she had, and buy me new handphones whenever I lost my headphones so yeah so i guess growing up my my knowledge of you know financial awareness financial literacy was pretty much close to zero <laughs> close to zero but uh you had a younger so i was actually going to ask you before but you answered it yourself you had a younger sister who was actually really good with money <laughs> so, so 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 she started bailing you out um was that then a lesson that you learned hey i can't rely always on my sister at some point or what was it like? So now you're like, you know, you get out of university, uh, start earning a salary that is not, you know, not just uh, an allowance, right? So mm -hmm. probably a little bit more money, but you're saying you didn't have much financial literacy knowledge. Is there, how did you start out? Keep spending it? Did you start putting money aside right away? Or what was kind of like your first steps there? Well, um, as you mentioned in my bio, I spent 15 years in lifestyle publishing. So lifestyle publishing for women included a lot of beauty, fashion, you know, clubbing, eating at yeah. great places. So obviously a lot of my salary in during my magazine days actually went towards supporting a lifestyle um, that people would tend to associate with, you know, people live, uh, working in the magazines, right? So I... I don't think I had a large saving account because I was depending on my paycheck to kind of support, you know, the lifestyle that I really wanted to lead. Uh, it's really embarrassing if you come to think about it, like, how can someone be this terrible with money? And I think the realization actually hit when I left my magazine job to start my own business. And, you know, I left with this high optimism thinking that, you know what? I'm always going to be able to have a paycheck. I'm just going to leave my job, start a magazine, uh, start my own business, and then, you know, the money will take care of itself. And unfortunately, that wasn't true, right? Like, um, leaving a job without actually having a comfortable savings account, you know, that really does wonders to somebody's level of financial literacy. And, you know, about one and a half years into doing my new business, I ended up having to sell my car because I could not afford, you know, um, keeping up with the car loans. I had to change my lifestyle and I definitely got a lot more discipline when it comes to saving and starting to put money aside for like investments. Yeah, so, so, so it took you a long time. You said like, uh, obviously, being in that lifestyle publishing industry, as you said, you're, you know, you're exposed to, a lot of nice things, right? And people buying things. So also peer pressure. And it's also a lot of the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out on other people. So I always talk about this in our financial literacy courses, actually, uh, a lot about lifestyle inflation, right? Because a lot of people say, oh, I put off like saving until later on because I will make more money. I can spend it now. But you make more money, you want nicer things, right? So that goes. So it's very, the, being disciplined is, is, is super, super important, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's great that you like took it back because I think you're not the only one. So first of all, don't feel like uh, that's the terrible thing. You came out the other side and we're going to talk about this and how that mm -hmm. happened. But I think it's the real talk, right? This is what happens to a lot of people. And I, yeah. I think it's very normal. And I always say I'm very fortunate because I was always in finance. So for me, it came more natural to start saving. But if you if that's not your main job, it's it's quite daunting. 
to start yeah. and it's and it's it's also not the first thing on your mind right yeah so and it's, oh sorry <laughs> yeah no go ahead yeah and it's really embarrassing because i remember you know once you started once i started drawing my first salary obviously as with i'm semi-sensible i would like to think of that and you know you start thinking about yeah maybe it's time <laughs> for me to get myself an insurance policy and so you meet up with insurance agents, financial advisors, right? And the first thing they would do is, what's your budget? Like basically, what's your monthly budget? How do you spend your money? And I found that I was always getting very defensive when they asked me about like, how do you spend your money? Because I had no idea how I was spending my money at all. <laughs> yeah, no, one of the big, big things that people hate me for, but I tell them, hey, do a budget for six to 12 months, once in your life at least. Mm -hmm. huge insights it gives you, right? Where am I spending money? Where am I spending too much? Where can I cut some, especially if you're not saving enough, right? So then you can really go back and say, hey, oh, this is ridiculous. I spent X amount on Grab, right? Car rides, or I spent this much on going out to dinner. But at least mm -hmm. that way you have a good overview and you can actually say to yourself, hey, okay, maybe I can cut that and I'd be disciplined about it next month. So is that something that you started doing after talking to these financial advisors or was it something you're kind of like, because you said you're defensive. So mm. what's the first reaction? No, I, I'm not, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're spot on. Like, you know, my first reaction was always like, um, I have no idea. How is it possible for anyone to start tracking their, their spending? You know, like my utility bills, they fluctuate month from month. You know, sometimes I eat out more, sometimes I shop more. How am I supposed to know, you know, what my budget really looks like, right? And I think um, it really took a very patient financial advisor to sit down with me, go through everything. So she was really like, you know, she didn't leave the cafe with me until you know i got my budget sorted out um i would say that that's that that really played you know made a lot of difference because um most financial advisors probably they see you for the first time and then they go like okay you have an hour right and they try to sell yeah. you something uh, yeah. maybe they ask you about your budget and if you can't answer it they'll probably be like oh it's okay give me a ballpark figure but this financial advisor that you know um i ultimately um end up building a very good relationship with you know she really sat down with me talked to me on budget you know tell me how a budget actually works and i think that was the defining moment you know where i started getting a lot more clarity about how i was spending my money and how i was actually using my money yeah no i think this is a great example of a very good financial advisor like you said before this lots of them out there that are just trying to sell you product. But if you really find someone that takes the time to educate you, right? Because I think it's a it's a gap in the education segment for most people, right? They're afraid. It's a daunting topic. Again, as we said before, there's a lot of things you can do wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, so that that's really important. So then you, you got a financial advisor. You started doing a budget. Uh, what were like the... This is after... The 15 years is when you started doing your own business or mm -hmm. before this already? This is after three years, after starting after my three own years business, of when I realized that I was going to be dead broke if I didn't start planning something now. <laughs> yes. No, no, this is good, right? So it, it was, you finally realized, hey, I need to do something, right? And do you feel like that, and I know you got, I want to get to your podcast later on, right? You guys call it Good Girls Talk About Money. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like there there wasn't enough uh, education or financial literacy courses offered in school or they were mostly catered uh, to men? What, what was kind of your experience when you were growing up with that? I think growing up, 
a lot of the financial literacy education we were like you know coming in contact with um focused a lot on good habits like they will tell you you've got to save your money um try not to borrow money from your friends or you know things like very moralistic stuff like if you want something but you don't have it either ask your parents to buy it for you save up for it but don't steal people's stuff right or don't go shoplifting and stuff like that but it was always more about establishing the habit rather than inspiring long-term thinking so basically save your money but then they stop short at telling you why and you know if you do need to buy certain stuff maybe set up saving goals or if let's say for instance you know they don't talk about opportunity cost you know for example they just tell you don't spend your money in a go in one go right but then they don't tell you things like if you spend your money in one go all on candies you're not going to have money left to buy food during during recess right so so i think a lot of like growing up my financial literacy education just consisted of like things like you should be doing this but they don't tell you the reason why and i think that's why I grow you know have after like you know drawing my first paycheck or even when i started coming you know having my own money to spend and stuff like that it never did occur to me that i needed to worry about the future you know i think also partly because when you're in your 20s you you're just drawing your first paycheck life looks so exciting and just go you know what i'm only 20 i have about 40 years before i i retire i have lots of time to think about it's retirement. such a daunting thing to think about if, it, I know, if something right? is 40 like, years away right? 40 years away <laughs> 40 years yeah. away is so long for mm. people now especially nowadays too when everything is so instant it's 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 very difficult uh, that's why I, I, I when I when I do some financial planning, I, I call it now more um, financial freedom. So people <laughs> can think about this faster because then they think, oh, if I can reach this at forty-five or fifty, mm -hmm. and I can actually do whatever I want to do, then that's that gives them a little bit more extra step, uh, a spring in their step, right, uh, to to get started. Actually, you you just reminded me of a story. Um... So when I was in Clio, I started the magazine's like first money column, which is really ironic if you think about it, right? Because yes. this person is actually spending her entire paycheck on shoes and dresses. And there she is writing the first money column. But I remember um, interviewing <laughs> a financial advisor and she was like telling me that, oh, you know, so basically we have this, um, we, we plan with our clients and we tell them like, you are a hundred, you are a hundred thousand dollars to D-Day and I was sitting there writing down my writing my notes right interviewing her and I was just like what is this D-Day you're talking about and you know she actually meant like you know if you want to retire at 45 this is how much more you you've got to start you know stashing away and stuff like that right and and I was just like thinking myself why would you want to retire at 45 and I was thinking because I love my job and I was like if I could do this forever I would. Why would anyone think about retiring? <laughs> and now when I think back to that conversation and now that you've brought it up and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I think I think when you are at when you're 40 and you're thinking, I wish I could retire at 45, this is exactly what they're talking about. And it really just hit me really too late, way too late. And I hope anyone who's listening to this podcast, and if you're 25 or you're 20, just just in your first job, just remember, start planning for your retirement now. <laughs> yeah, start planning now because it just gives you so much freedom, right? So I'm, I'm not saying you don't have to work or you stop working completely at 45 or 50 or 55. The point is you could survive without it. 
but you can do whatever you feel like, you, whatever you want to do, right? And I mm -hmm. think that's that's something that um, you know I, I want to get back uh, from, from your side is, so you said, you know, after being 15 years in a, you know, stable job, you have your income every month, you don't have that many savings, you still take the risk of going out on your own. Um, what was that business that you started, first of all? And uh, yeah, what was that pro you know decision process like? Oh no, I'm I'm done. I I, I don't want to work this day to day uh, stable job anymore, and I want to do my own thing. So I think the defining point where I kind of decided that you know this is this is not sustainable was when I realized that despite I started out with a when I started my business, I was very confident that things will pick up, that things will go back to normal. Uh, maybe after two and a half years, after three years, right? And in the meantime, my CPF will support, you know, my mortgage payments. So there came a time where suddenly I was looking at my CPF just going down, down, down. And it suddenly hit me that, look, if things don't pick up, it really means that I would start to have to pay my mortgages back in cash, and I'm barely living, you know, month to month, knowing what I was going to get the next month. Because the business that I started was a content agency and it was like a professional service kind of mm -hmm. agency, right? And if you're in business, you will know that professional services, they, they're so difficult to scale because you kind of like, you know, offer freelance writing to your clients. They're used to your way of writing. They're used to your way of working. And if let's say you try to scale the business and say, you know what, um, I'm hiring a junior writer to, to take over this account, they're likely going to take their money and go, okay, look, I'm just going to go to someone else who can sort of give me that kind of experience that I actually want. So yeah. my partners and I were finding it really hard to scale that business. And after two and a half years, it felt, it, it seemed like we've reached a peak. Like there was just no way I could double my income or make my income go any higher without duplicating myself or kind of you know um hiring junior writers but bring them up to the skill levels that my clients are you know accustomed to right and it was our first business all four of us were from the lifestyle magazine background we were all writers so obviously we weren't aware that there was such a thing called investors and yes. we weren't aware that you know you could get people to invest in your business and stuff like that so we were bootstrapping it the whole way right and it just became unsustainable and i decided that look you know um it it's it's got to we've got to come out of this business we've got to exit go back to our regular jobs go back you know find find a way to learn how to run businesses again and then um meanwhile earn go back to earning a regular salary get get our financial health back in shape and maybe you know a few years down the road we can start thinking about starting businesses again yeah yeah so so you went back to work um that's kind of when you did the education tech startup kind of scene okay so yeah. um so you do you get out the, out of the regular workforce so to speak um uh, kind of still doing what you've done before but on your own um i think that's a good lesson to learn as well right i think also doing something while you still have a job to get like a side job to you know just they call it side hustle nowadays right or whatever you want to call it um, but having these different income stream mm -hmm. also make you financially independent, right? So that's also one way that you don't rely on one. If there's a crisis and you lose your job, you still have other revenue streams. I think it's super, super important concept when it comes to personal finance. I think 
you've done it without <laughs> actually planning on it. It was kind of like, hey, we want to go out on our own and, and do this. So now you're doing the um, ad tech startup, um, getting into the space. Do you, are you still were you still running at that point the content uh, agency, or did um, you guys it, shut that down? Oh, we didn't shut it down completely. In the first six months of me joining um, the ad tech startup, um, some of my partners were still keeping the agency going. We had some contracts that we still needed to fulfill. So we kept that going until we could, you know, um, either complete those contracts or when our clients were ready to hand it over to a new set of writers to, to take over, right? Um, so that we kept it going till about December 2016. I joined SmartUp in January, oh, December 2017. I joined SmartUp in January 2017. So yeah. that kind of, that was like a little bit of an overlap. Mm. Yeah, no, good. And then now, you're at uh, a fintech yeah. <laughs> at Revolut, which is uh, obviously a great company. Um, we know you guys really well uh, as a fellow fintech, obviously in the industry here in Singapore, as well as in other countries. So um, from being financially not so literate to, you know, having your en encounter with your financial planner um, who got you really on track, you know, really worked with you on this to now working in communications and PR for a fintech dealing with day-to-day -day finances on the on a mm -hmm. daily basis, right? How was that jump over there? And like, you know, what have you been learning so far that, that's been helping you? Yeah, I think that I've been lucky to sort of have very smooth transitions into the fintech world. Um, when I left my agency and joined um, SmartUp, SmartUp's um, roster of clients were mainly from the financial institutions, right? So we dealt with um, clients like the Institute of Banking and Finance, uh, the Singapore College of Insurance, and all of them wanted to sort of gamify their training content. So I had the opportunity to sort of get, you know, um, very hands-on with content such as money laundering, um, you know, risk assessment, um, understanding different types of insurance, how insurance work, you know, things like that. So um, that was very fortunate. So I had, like, I came in, I managed to come into contact with a great deal of um, financial training content. And I think, you know, coupled with my experience in lifestyle publishing, I kind of like, you know, imagine a Venn diagram, right? Where the two of them meet. And in the center, it's just this perfect, you know, um, space where I could see for myself, you know, you can take financial literacy, financial education and make it relevant, um, make it more, uh, make it easier to understand, have, you know, write it in such a way that even uh, complete novice would be able to understand that content. So with that, um, I, I think I took that experience with me um, when I joined Revolut and then, you know, using, using my background in comms and PR, then I think about how do I create content? How do I create press releases, engage the media in like um, story angles to, to sort of help people understand Revolut's offering a little bit better. So yeah, I've been lucky yeah. to, to be able to transition very smoothly from one industry to another. You know, thanks yeah. to my time at at SmartUp. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think it's a good, good, good storyline also for for the listeners, right? Especially the younger ones. You know, there's not a set path that you have to follow the whole life, right? You kind of move, navigate it around it, find the opportunities, 
uh, and things like that. So um, what I do want to get to is uh, your current situation, right? Uh, we talked a little bit about the paths, kind of like where you come from, what you're doing, um, but where you are now, right? In terms of building up financial security and planning for the future, what are like the, the top things you're doing right now to, you know, enhance your personal well, financial well-being? Okay. Oh, that's interesting that you asked this question uh, because I'm a huge fan of Stash Away. <laughs> and I think um, having, a, having a, a service, an app like Stash Away, you know, um, you guys got to pay me for the endorsement. It's, it's yes. beautiful <laughs> when it comes to, to um, improving your financial health because I think one of the biggest obstacles that I initially faced when it came to sort of um, knowing what my financial health looked like was the lack of visibility and clarity, right? I know I was, you know, putting money into various insurance policies. I knew like every month something is gyroed out of my bank account to support something, but I was never quite sure what those things would eventually lead to, right? And then when yeah. Stash Away launched, you do that profile thing, they tell you your projection and, you know, they tell you that if you put away a certain sum of money every month uh, for a certain number of years and I hope this prediction will come true you will end up having this sum of money so I, I felt like it was a very easy way for me to get my head around you know the whole if you put in your money over a certain time horizon this is how much you can look you know you can expect to get at the end of a certain number of years and through that then I started wanting that same level of visibility from all my policies existing policies and stuff like that and that was when I sat down again with my financial advisor and I really asked you know very specific question right how much am I putting away every month into these policies at the end of how many years what am I looking at getting right and with that I also came to realize that there is just no point I mean, this, this, this is advice that's just personal. It may not apply yeah. to everyone. There's actually no point in having a savings account anymore because something like Stash Away makes it easy for you to also take out that money. There's no lock-in period. And I think one of yeah. the pain points of you know, insurance policies, of investment link policies, you know, things like that, even unit trust with banks, there is a lock-in period. But if you should find yourself suddenly without a job and you need to access you know, a, a certain sum of money to sort of get life, keep life going as, as it usually is, you don't want that lock-in period. And I think something that I appreciate with, you know, Stash Away's like service is that, yes, I'm saving that money. I can see how that money is growing. And touch wood, if I ever need to access that sum of money, I can always, you know, draw it out without some kind of penalty. Yeah, I may lose that, that, that production you know, that trajectory that, you know, I, I'm looking forward to. But that's just in case, right? If I need to and I won't be penalized, right? So that's why yeah, I think the, it's I think it's an yeah. important topic, right? I, I know I I don't want to talk too too much about statuary on my end, but uh, <laughs> because we're biased, of course. But um but in in general, anytime you look at an investment, I think the number one question there's a few questions you have to ask any advisor or any person selling you the product is mm -hmm. what are my fees? Uh, yep. And what are they really? Even if they say there are no fees, there are fees. Mm -hmm. So asking about fees, but I think lock-in period is super, super, super important, right? 
Um, yeah. it's, it's one of the most important things, you know, not just, you know, what's my surrender value. If I surrender early, what's the penalty, things like that are super important because too many people I've seen when I do financial planning and go through their old policies, it's, it's, it's sad and horrendous to see some of the stuff, right. That yeah. that's, it, it holds you back. You want to have control. Like you said, having control of your finances, is the number one thing mm -hmm. that you can do. Right. So you have, um, so you've done a lot of that. So you use Stashaway as one option, but obviously you do other things. You have still a home run uh, bakery business. You yeah. also uh, do a podcast. So what, how did they both come about? So um, the bakery business was really something to keep my mind away from the COVID lockdown. So last year, as you know, we all had to work from home. We couldn't go out very much. And I think it was a period of time where the government also told people that you know, bakeries will no longer be selling cakes. They could only sell bread, right? So um, I think, so one of my friend's birthday coincided during that period, with that period. And I was wondering like, oh, it would be so nice if we could just send her a cake, right? So I started making this um, traditional Peranakan dessert called Kueh Salad, but I made it into a, a cake form, like round, instead of like just pieces. And I, I actually delivered it to, to her house. And her, her mother, her mother-in-law, who is Peranakan, took a bite of that, that kueh and she said, it's really authentic tasting. You know, she should consider selling it because nobody's, nobody makes it like this anymore, you know, something like that. So, so everyone messaged me and said, you should sell it now. I said, oh, I was thinking maybe after the pandemic. No, silly, you should sell it now. So I was like, okay. So I, I, I started it on Instagram. It's a really simple operation. I, I, I don't take too many orders. I just take enough so that I'm earning maybe $200 every weekend. And if you multiply that by 52 weeks, that's quite a substantial like side yes. income that you can use to invest and make your money work harder for you, right? So I started that. I started taking orders. And before I knew it, you know, um, I got some write-ups in magazines and stuff like that. And more orders came in. And so every time I release order slots, they, they, get, they get taken up quite quickly. And people have to pay before you know, when to confirm their orders. So that's a nice income that's always yeah. coming into my bank account. So that's my bakery business. In a that's nutshell. awesome. I, I think I didn't know, but this is, uh, this is interesting. And obviously, uh, congrats to you. And I think, like you said, it's $200 a week. That adds mm -hmm. up, right? You said 52 yeah. weeks a year. And now you do this for multiple years. That's good money to put mm -hmm. away, right? And to yeah. start earning passive income from. So I think that's one of the things that people need to think about, you can do this next to your work, right? You can mm -hmm. try things out. If they go bigger and greater and yeah. you can make it your full-time job, that's great. But you don't have to like quit or anything. There's a lot of things when people, mm -hmm. um, they're always afraid, like taking the plunge. You don't have to take the full jump plunge. into the water, yeah. right? Yeah. You can actually, actually do it like this. And then obviously on top of that, you also just recently launched a podcast. So we're fellow podcasters now here uh, in, in beautiful <laughs> Singapore. So uh, good girls talk about money. So obviously now after talking to, I have a lot more uh, background on why you started it because you did all the uh, ed educational efforts at the old company. Same, uh, and then obviously with Revolut as well. Um, do you do it alone or do you have a host or how did you, how did you guys come up with it? <laughs> Well, I don't do it alone. I have a co-host and that co-host is the financial advisor who actually helped me turn my finances huh. around. Full <laughs> so circle. So we become friends. Full circle. So, Full circle. <laughs> so like, um, so it started because um, one year she came to me and said, look, I have the, I have the knowledge 
and you write really well. So maybe I could get you to help me write some content on education, you know, educating people about their finances and stuff like that. So I, I wrote a few articles for her and, you know, she shared it on her LinkedIn and stuff like that. So that's great. And then after a while, we started talking again, like, oh, how can we sort of make this a little bit more friendly, right? Because as we know, a lot of people don't really like reading <laughs> nowadays, no. unfortunately. So last year, we sort of had coffee together and I said, you know what? I really like this whole podcasting thing. I started one when I was at SmartUp as well called Humanizing Learning. And I realized that, hey, you know what? It's so much more natural and organic when you have like a conversation going on and you just pick things up as you talk and your, reader, your listeners kind of benefit from it. So I said, why don't we co-host a podcast about money? And it's not just, you know, going through the whole dry topic about, you know, what is interest rate, what's compound interest, blah, blah, blah. But really just talking about money like friends would. Like sometimes when I meet, her up for co- meet up with her for coffee, I would go like, oh, you know, like, Donald Trump is the president now. Do you think it's really worthy, worthwhile, you know, going into the US market, blah, 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 blah. And it's just normal conversation, you know, plain English, nothing too jargonish that we wanted to bring to our listeners. So it's more like good girls talk about money and it's named that way because, you know, a long time ago, it would be seen as rather vulgar or crass for women to talk about money so passionately. So that's why we kind of like wanted to play on the, the fact that, you know, we're, we're two girls, we're coming together to talk about money and there's nothing materialistic or, you know, crass about the whole thing. It's just like friends having a conversation and empowering each other with good financial information and knowledge. Yeah, no, I think it's a super cool concept. Uh, I listened to a few of your episodes and we'll put this also in the show notes uh, oh, for all you. our <laughs> listeners, right? So that they can get, can have a listen to as well. Um, you said something there just er, just now is that, you know, it like a few years back or like 10, 20 years back, it wouldn't be... Uh, women girls talking about something like this in a public domain right so what do you think has changed and uh, that allowed that to happen now well i think what has changed is that you know basically a lot more women are now more aware of what is happening out there with their money and and surprisingly i think it's to do with this entire you know um advent of digital financial services and tech that's coming up, right? So it you're engaging the audience in a safe space. So, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to talk about money, if you wanted to, you know, challenge someone about anything about money, like the stock market or talking about trading, if you were in, you imagine yourself at a dinner party and you're a woman and you're talking about like, you know, I think it's it's pointless to going into the US stock market right now and blah, blah, blah. And a man challenges you. I, I think it's pretty intimidating and I would still find it intimidating, right? But with the smartphones, with apps, you know, that come up with like, you know, like for instance, Stash Away, where you can click on certain content about financial literacy. You have podcasts about financial literacy. You have blogs about financial literacy. And suddenly, women are reading a lot more um, in their own space and learning these information, picking these information up without actually, you know, having to second guess themselves, without actually having to sort of wonder, you know, is this information 
legit or is this information correct? And if I were to share such information in the public space or in a public setting, you know, will I be laughed at, you know, for being ignorant? So I think I think the the availability of such content and the availability of such content um, in a space where women are comfortable just engaging with the content um, on their own time, in their own space, you know, that that kind of thing, that's that's really made it much easier for a lot of women to start becoming finan- personal finance um, influencers. So, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, oh, having for sure. all these yeah, the apps. Internet. Yeah. yeah, internet mm. apps, uh, I think in general, internet obviously just develop wealth of information that everyone can Google for themselves, right? But I think we also see this when we were, you know, last year, you know, we were still doing in-person events and we easily get 50, 60% uh, a female audience. Mm-hmm. They're very interested, especially on the financial planning topics, right? When the yep. investment, deeper investment topics are still mostly dominated by male um, people coming. But the financial planning one, which I think is the most important one to start with before you even invest, mm. a lot of female participation. So it's really good to see, right? So people take it in their own hand. A lot of people, especially I think I just had this discussion actually with a client and uh, his wife works just as much as he does. And uh, we were doing financial planning and... Um, he was saying they have two children and they're expecting their third one right now. But now due to COVID, she works from home. Everyone is working from home anyway. So she doesn't have to even, you know, stop working, uh, you know, because now they can work from home. It's so much easier, right? Because mm-hmm. everyone, it's, I think COVID will have a lot with that as well. So that equalizes it as well. You don't have to take like a, like three years off, right? Because you can still be home and maybe work from home. So I think that that all helps. So this is really, really cool, cool stuff coming up. Um, so to wrap it up, um, Deborah, I think if we could turn back the clock, right? Mm-hmm. What are some of the things you would, uh, you know, some nuggets of wisdom you would pass on to our audience that you would have loved to hear early on? I think you mentioned a few of them. Start early, mm-hmm. um, thinking about retirement or call it some whatever you need to call it to make it uh, start. But what what other ones do you have to share? Um. Yeah, I think I can't emphasize enough that it's incredibly important to have full visibility of your financials, you know, knowing how much you are earning and how much you have left over to use to grow your wealth. Um, A little bit of a plug here, you know, um, when we talked about engaging the audience in a space that they're familiar with, Revolut recently launched a app, a product called Revolut Junior, and that's to help parents and kids, you know, get on with the whole financial literacy program to give them a platform that they can actually start engaging their kids. So, you know, um, earlier on, I talked about how parents used to just tell you to save, but they don't tell you to have saving goals. So, you know, Revolut Junior has that, that function where you can sort of set up saving goals for your kids. And if they want to buy, say, like PS5 or something, you can say, look, I will co-fund part of it, but you will have to save up at least, you know, $100 by Christmas for me to sort of buy the PS5 for you. So, yeah, so I think engaging, you know, I I really, if, there, if I could turn back the clock, I wish there were more opportunities where I could sort of learn and be engaged in like a space that I felt comfortable and, and safe in. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think great, great story. And I think it comes back to that, right? Like getting early on, get started, you know, help teach your kids, uh, you know, about how to manage their allowances, right? And, and, and getting something and not just buying it for them. I think it's a, a, yeah. a, a great steps in the right direction. So again, Deborah, thank you so much 
for joining us. This was really awesome, especially with your podcast um, going strong. Uh, I'm sure there will be other topics we can cover in the future. But again, thank you for being here with us. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us. And we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip Müller. We're produced by Stashaway and we're mixed by Mo Ramley.